Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? I love it. Always better for me to be too loud than too quiet, right? There we go. It's 11.11, right on time. Perfect. So we are going to be continuing our study into Romans today. You guys excited? Come on now. Are you excited? That's what I'm talking about. I mean, I worked really hard on this, right? So I appreciate it. Uh, Romans is the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire Bible. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to chapter 9. That's where we're going to spend our time today. Some call it the gospel according to Paul. The theme here, as you see in our online graphics and graphics in the room, the grace of God revealed is the overarching theme of all of Romans. God's righteousness, our iniquity, God's remedy through that word grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Amen? So Romans chapter 9, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Romans chapter 9 begins one of the most important trilogies in the scriptures. We've become a culture that loves trilogies, don't we? Star Wars. Anybody? Lord of the Rings, right? They decide to make another Star Wars. It's got to be another trilogy. Got to make another Lord of the Rings. It's got to be another trilogy. Another Star Wars, another trilogy, right? We're a trilogy. We're a culture that loves trilogies. Here we have one of the most impactful trilogies, important trilogies in all of scriptures, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future. From Genesis, uh, from Genesis uh, 12 to Acts chapter 9, the word of God is all about Israel with an emphasis on the fact that God keeps his promises. Do we have that? I think I have that in the uh, tile for that. Let's make that point. What, what does he do? God keeps his promises, church. We are about to watch Paul lay out some doctrine, Israelology. We talked about that briefly last week, and perhaps we will uh, talk about it a little bit more next week. Of all of the different ologies that a pastor is to learn in a seminary, one of the most important ones typically gets left off of the list with modern-day pastoral training, and it's Israelology. It is of paramount importance to Paul, doctrine that he himself is highly, highly emotional about, and we'll see that as we study today, as we did last week, and we'll see that over the next couple of Chapters. The problem that Paul, that Paul grappled with was one of intense personal concern to him. He gloried in his ministry to the Gentiles. We all know that, don't we? If you read Paul at all, he gloried in his ministry to the Gentiles uh, as apostle to the Gentiles, and he rejoiced in their salvation. But his own kith and kin, as they say in the South, the Jewish nation, had for the most part failed to accept him. And I broke his heart. Even though 
The gospel of salvation was proclaimed to them first. By and large, they rejected it. In a day of widespread, widespread national apostasy, that should sound familiar to us, in a day of national widespread apostasy, the prophet Isaiah saw that judgment would fall on Israel and Judah on such a scale, as a matter of fact, that only a handful of the smallest remnant would survive. Yet in this remnant of Israel, Isaiah also saw the hope of the future embodied, the same hope that Paul is going to draw upon as we read through chapter 9 today. That same hope. God's purposes and God's promises for his people Israel. Through them, other peoples of the world would be saved, provided, provided a remnant could emerge from the crucible of invasion, provided a remnant could emerge from defeat and exile to ultimately become a saved and thus saving remnant. This remnant Paul sees embodied now here in the New Testament, in the first church. Paul sees embodied in this new minority of Jews who, like himself, had acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Paul sees that remnant in this small body of Jews. They were a minority, to be sure. Sometimes, as a Bible-believing Christian in this nation, even among the churches of this nation, we feel like a minority, don't we? They were a minority, to be sure, but their very existence, the way he saw it, ensured the fulfillment of a wholesale turning to the Lord on a day yet to come for his people. That is the position of Paul's heart. As we read, let's go to the scripture. Chapter 9, verse 6 through 13, we'll take on initially, but let's just start out with 6. Let's just take them one at a time, huh? But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. In In other words, he's saying, Had God's plan gone awry? Here he was. He came as the Savior to all the world. He came through the the Jewish people as he promised he would, and here he's come to them, yet they have largely rejected him. Had God's plan gone awry? No, 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 no. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Whoa, hold on now. What's that supposed to mean, huh? There's a lot in here. There's a lot of layers in here, church. Not all the descendants of Israel are Israelites in the inward sense. Not all the children of Abraham are children of Abraham in the spiritual sense. He's already explained this in chapter 4, if we remember. Oh my gosh, there's so much here. This, it might take us a month just to get through chapter 9. So what, right? Maybe this is just the year that we go through Romans properly, huh? That wouldn't be so bad. (laughs) Your fathers 
Faye, here's, here's the point. Here's what Paul's driving at. Here's, here's something we can pull out of this right here, right now, for you and for me, okay? Uh, what's he say? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What? Not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham in the spiritual sense. What in the world does this mean? It means your father's faith is not your faith. Let that sink in for a moment. Your grandmother's faith is not your faith, you understand. You cannot bank on that. Well, my, grand, my grandmother is a godly woman. She went to church. My dad's a godly man. He took us to Sunday school. I'm sure we're saved. I mean, I believe all that. Do you? I mean, I think I'm saved. I mean, I go to church, right? Your father's faith is not your faith. Your grandmother's faith is not your faith. You cannot bank on it. Even Abraham, think about this. Abraham had other kids that did not receive the blessings that you have. Abraham's own children. Through Hagar, Keturah, they had Ishmael and Zimron. They did not receive the blessing of Abraham. At some point, you have to make your faith your own. And I hope I've got some youth in here listening this morning, too. Because this was big for me when I was about 17. At some point, you have to make your faith your very own. Otherwise, you're just playing church. Remember when you were kids? I remember when I was kids, the cousins would all get together. We'd play school. Did anybody else play school when you were little? No? Yeah? Some of you. We'd play school, right? You remember that? I, I, wanted, I, I never wanted to be the teacher, funny enough. I just wanted to sit in the front row. I still want to sit in the front row, really. At some point, you have to step out on your own. I don't do this a whole lot, but... Props can be fun, right? So let's have a little fun here. John brought me these sturdy chairs. I don't know, Andrew, if you're going to need to bring in camera two for the folks at home. But here we have a nice sturdy chair, and it better be, right? You don't know what I'm going to do yet, though, do you? Well, let's bring these over here. At some point, I was born, I was raised, and I stood upon the firm foundation of my parents' faith, Right? Raised as a Christian, a believer. If anybody asked me if I was a Christian, of course I was a Christian. Of course, I did not know what I believed, and I did not know why I believed it. Maybe I knew some of what I believed, but I certainly didn't know why, because mom said, dad said, and the Sunday school teachers said, right? At some point as you grow older, though, these questions begin to stir in your soul. Well, why do I believe that? What does the Bible really have to say about that? Can I even really trust the Bible? At some point, you've got to get off that chair and you have to take a, a leap of faith in some direction. It, this chair looks... It, it's, I'm going to have to make a jump here, okay? Are you guys nervous for me? Huh? I've got to take a step of faith. But now, 
what we really have to decide is which step of faith am I going to take? Because it's really a step of faith either way. Am I going to believe that the God of the Bible is true, that his word has stood up over all of these thousands of years? The more that I study it, the more it proves itself to be true. If there were one atheist in the history of the world that can prove it wasn't true, they would have done it in spades by now. Do I believe that God loved me enough to come to earth, become flesh, so so I could identify with him to save me from myself? Do I believe that he loved me enough to write an interdimensional book to reveal his character to me through his prophets and sages? Do I, can I take that step of faith or do I take another step of faith to, if there's nothing? How about that chair? Ron, can you push that chair forward? There we go. Right about there. To me, this step of faith to, well, it's, there's probably nothing. We probably just were, were cosmic soup. That's what we were. That somehow particles came from nowhere, exploded into each other, and somehow I turned into a human from a frog of cosmic soup. That's really the alternative that we're being op- offered by modern science. Cosmic soup. Literally, that's what they call it, cosmic soup. Do, am I going to take that step of faith? To me, that step, it doesn't look as sturdy. Should I take it? To me, this step of faith looks more like, it's more like that far away. And it's still about that sturdy. Should I make the leap or should I take my own step of faith? Now, it's going to be scary. I'm kind of, uh, got to watch my balance. I got to sort this thing out. You guys know how this could go for me. I've broken my foot enough times, right? At some point, you get it, right? You get the point? At some point, we have got to take our own step of faith. At some point, will you get rid of these for me? Thank you, buddy. At some point, every single one of us will stand alone before God. At the end of the day, every single one of us stands naked before the Lord, No riches, no works, just you, your faith and or lack of. To either receive rewards or answer for our wickedness. And we all have wickedness that we cannot atone for, don't we? But he did. And if that's you and you're still, you're in a crisis of your own faith, maybe you're one of the teenagers in here today and you've never made that step of faith yourself because to step out at all is scary, you're going to have to take a leap at some point. And what will you step to? I'm telling you, all he wants to do is love you. Church, if there is any argument to be made in the correlation to seed, well, maybe my whole household will be saved. Uh, just be, even though people in my home aren't believers, maybe my household will be saved, right? Some, some people like to think that sometimes. Well, you know, if there's any argument to be made in regards to that, it's got to stop at the household, right? I mean, beyond first generation, second generations, how many generations would you take that then, theoretically? I venture to say every single one of us has to make a decision for ourselves, and Abraham, the man of faith, made that decision. 
The blessing of faith came through him, not his siblings. And even so, Paul now says, for not, who, not all of Israel are Israelites. What? No, not all the children of, of, uh, not all the children of Abraham or not even Abraham's siblings received that blessing, church. This is also a passage that when having been removed from its context, so we've got to look at this from both sides, right? Paul is clearly telling us this is a faith issue. This is an individual issue. There, thusly, this is an election issue. There's also a different side to this card that we have to look at. This passage is a passage that having been removed from the context of Paul's heart, remember his heart as we study, you have the whole, we set the whole thing up with his heart and the, the, how his heart is, has agony for those of the nation Israel who have rejected the Messiah, right? Remember his heart because when you remove this text from the context, it has been used to justify atrocities. The atrocities of replacement theology. Replacement theology. In other words, God's promises for Israel are for us now. They rejected the Messiah. We accepted the Messiah. So all those promises for Israel are now for us. Did you know that th throughout the New Testament, Israel is never used of the church? The term Israel is never used meaning the church. 73 different times it is used, and every single time it is used of Israel proper, not the church. There's also called dominion theology. Dominion theology is the theology that says, well, we have got to establish our dominion here on earth. We, as the ones who have accepted the Messiah, now need to bring about the conditions on earth for him to return and rule and reign. So break out your machine gun. We're going to literally, physically wore this place into a kingdom that he's ready for to come down and sit on, sit on the throne for. All Zionists are bad. They're just evil Jew bankers, and let's kill them all. See, even Paul said that not all of Israel are Israelites. We've got to wipe them out to manifest the will of God here on earth. Oh, some wicked things have been done in the name of God, twisting the scriptures, church thinking of dominion theology, even old Hickory himself. We like to talk about old Hickory, Andrew Jackson around here, right? Didn't he believe in manifest destiny? Or at least co-opt the idea? Instead of Israelites, though, it was Indians, right? And they had to go trail of tears. To the edge of California, we had to manifest the destiny of God ourselves. Regardless of the carnage, we must go west and do God's work for him to conquer before he will come back and reign over the kingdom that has come by our hands, they say. If there is one thing that we can be sure of, church, it is this, that Satan knows it is easy to manipulate the masses when they are uneducated. Have we not learned that in the last two years? Oh, boy. But primarily, when we are uneducated biblically, is it easy for him to manipulate us? Secondarily, when they lack the wisdom 
because they fail to ask for it from God. When we lack wisdom because we fail to ask for it from God, we are easily manipulated and led astray. Too often times people fail to ask for wisdom from God because in their error they believe that their own wisdom will suffice. So Paul says, has God's plan gone awry? No, no indeed. Some have always opened their hearts to God's revelation, and some have always hardened their hearts to God's revelation. We see that throughout the Bible, don't we? And by the variety of their responses, they have shown whether or not they were among those whom God has set his sovereign choice upon. So yes, in the word of God, do we see election? Yes, we do see election. It is a thing as we study it, but we must understand it. It's impossible to argue that there weren't a chosen few that this gospel has been handed down to through us. Yes, a chosen few. But that does not remove choice from the equation. We all have to make a choice to take the step of faith or not. No man or woman is immune from that moment. The seed of Abraham and of Adam really has moved through the generations from Noah to Elisha, from Josiah to my dad. But my dad's faith couldn't save me. It had to be my own. Whomever it was that led you into the saving knowledge that leads to faith, that promised seed line has gone through. And make no mistake, it is knowledge It is a knowledge that has traveled through the generations that walks hand in hand with faith. Our faith is not blind and foolish. It stands on a foundation of truth. Amen? John chapter 3, verse uh, 3 through 6 reads, jumping out of Romans briefly, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, verse 4, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You get to choose if you get elected. We understanding that? It's pretty cool, huh? Robert's running for school board here, huh? Robert, raise your hand, huh? Amen. Wouldn't it be nice if he could just choose to get elected? I choose to get elected. It'd save you a lot of work, wouldn't it, Robert? There, there is so, church, there is a much higher seat that you can assure your election for than the governments that the earth has to offer. Amen? How about ambassador for the kingdom of the most high God and only God, our creator? Who would like to be elected for that position, huh? You can choose to be his statesman. You can choose to be his stateswoman here and today and to take it Take it for real. Is that real to you? 
Is that real to you? Have you taken that step of faith and chosen your election, church? A lot of people said it was real to them, but then when Jesus came, he said, who are you? He said, I know who your real dad is, and it's not the father. John chapter 8, verse 44. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. But when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. My favorite translation says his native language, for he is a liar and the father of it. So plainly, plainly here, all of physical Israel is not spiritual Israel, yet there are still physical promises for national Israel. Israel. And that's good news. Don't you want God to keep his promises to you? Hmm? Remember the covenants. Can we see them on the screen? We went over this last week. The covenants of God. These covenants are unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant. Jesus will sit on the throne of David in physical Jerusalem on this earth one day. No Gentile can replace him for that. The everlasting covenant that he has with Israel. Church, let's keep reading Romans chapter 9, verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 8. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And what did Abraham do? Sarah laughed. Abraham believed and had faith. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. Verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls, or better translated, that calls is is called, but not of works, but of him who is called. It was said to her, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Esau, who was a man of war. A man of war who, according to the Dead Sea Scroll book of Jasher, killed Nimrod for the garments of Adam, and he fled so hastily that he had to give up his birthright on the way out the door to his brother. The point of the scripture here is to identify Jacob's election now, obviously. So again, there is such a thing as election. But who is elected, church? And the Calvinist wants to say, well, God's just picking winners and losers. God picks some whom he will elect, and then he picks others whom he will damn. Black and white. 
That's election. Church, that is not the election that Paul is talking about. Again, consider the broader context of Romans. He's just spent all of this time telling the Gentiles that they are elected by faith. And he's defending Israel as the church become, grows largely Gentile and some of the church members begin to think, well, what's so special about the Jews? We're all saved the same way now, but what's special about them? Well, and Paul goes on in great length to tell us, well, they brought you the message. They were the carriers. There's something special to that. And they've still got a lot of these promises, by the way. So don't start thinking that they're not special still. I think he does a pretty good job of breaking this all down, honestly. You'd think it was Holy Spirit inspired or something, right? Who is elected? Can the hardline Calvinists say the subject truly has no part to play in their election? No choice? Those who yield their hearts to God are elected. Church, this has been firmly established by now. I'm not going to beat it like a dead horse. Is that what they say? Justin Martyr, here, just make, to make a few points. Justin Martyr said this in his second apology, 165 AD, early church father. He said, man acts by his own free will and not by fate. In other words, it is not decided for him by any outside force, even God. You see, biblical, we have to understand the difference. What, we have to understand what foreknowledge is, okay? Because God exists outside of time, and we've talked about this before, but he sees all of history from the beginning to the end. He sees your tomorrow today. See, he's not trapped in time with us. He sees it, imagine, from a third-party perspective, looking at a parade from a helicopter, right? You see the beginning and the end. Each day is numbered. We have to understand what foreknowledge is in contrast to election. Can I see this next graphic on the screen? Biblical foreknowledge is this, and it's important that we understand this. God knows what will happen in the future, including each person's choice to become a believer or reject the gift of salvation. If you accept God's gift by exercising your free will, you become a Christian. You gain eternal life. You become a part of the group that is predestined for salvation. That predestined is another word that can confuse us when we don't understand the concept of election and foreknowledge. You become part of the group that is predestined for salvation, predestined because none of us are yet glorified. We talked about this a lot in past chapters, didn't we? Justification by faith. Sanctification is what we are living through now, ultimately to when we are transfigured one day into our glorified bodies that even the dead now are not in yet. Even my dad is not yet in his glorified body for the dead in Christ shall rise first, Paul said. Wow. If only we could see beyond this veil, huh? My goodness. <laughs> From the mouths of babes comes perfect praise. This is Calvinistic foreknowledge. Don't let it confuse you. Can I see this next graphic? God foreknew those he wished to pick to save and give eternal life to and those he wished to send to hell. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. 
You have to understand, and let me say this, we have choice, we have free will, but let me encourage you in this. Once you are his, once you are his, don't discount his ability to keep you because he is strong when you are weak. When your faith is weak, when you're at your lowest, he is still strong. Through your weakness, doubt, and the dark night of the soul, Jesus tells the Father that he has not lost one that the Father gave for him, that he's kept safe in the palm of his hands. John 18, verse 9, look that up. He's not lost one whose hearts were truly enlightened and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit that chose their election, thus predestined them for glorification. See, doctrine can be good, can it? It can be inspiring. Arrhenius in A.D. 177, in his work against heresies, he wrote this, Romans chapter 8, which we just got out of. He said it refers to the church being predestined to conform to the image of Christ. Have we done that yet? Are we conformed truly to the image of Christ yet? Physically? No. But we are still predestined to. Amen? Does predestination make a little more sense now? Election make a little more sense? I hope it does. There is election, but it is based on the foreknowledge that God has. It is imperative that we understand this because the enemy wants to twist this idea on us and make God cruel. We cover this actually at really a lot of lengths where a lot of this stuff comes from historically in the history of the church. We cover it in our foundation series on YouTube. So go look up our foundation series on YouTube. Maybe Carolyn can share that on the feed, a link or something. Or maybe we just need to dedicate one night to it, one of these Wednesday nights. But let's read on. Verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 14. We got to get moving. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Remember the case that Paul is making. He has thoroughly explained that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer man or woman. We're all one in Christ. But he is also trying to convey to the church that Israel still has a place. God has made them promises, and he is still going to keep them because God keeps his promises. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this is the very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, you are... Or, oh, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Verse 21, Does not the potter have power over the clay in the same lump to make one vessel for honor honor and another for dishonor? 
This harkens to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Can we see that on the screen quickly? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, a pot with the potter. Does the clay not say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Why didn't you put handles, right? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to... Maybe I should say it like this. What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? As has been pointed out before here, church, in chapter 2, verse 4, the mercy and forbearance of God are intended to afford people time for repentance. If instead they hardened their hearts still even more, as Pharaoh did, what did Pharaoh do? Some would say, oh, look, God created Pharaoh to be an object of wrath. No, 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 no. Do you remember the story of Pharaoh? How many times did Moses go to Pharaoh? Again and again and again. If instead they hardened their hearts still more, as Pharaoh did, after repeated delays repeated forbearance, they're storing up for themselves an increasing amount of retribution, which is frightening. Verse 23, let's finish this out. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. He has good things, in other words, church. He has good things planned for those who love him, who choose him. In his foreknowledge, he's gone ahead and prepared good works for you to step into. He's prepared ways to honor you, who choose election, to become a part of a predestined group. Even us, verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but, of, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25, he shares a scripture from Hosea. As we'll close with this, verse 25, he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not Beloved, speaking of Gentiles here, of course. And it shall come to pass, verse 26, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Why? Because God keeps his promises. Verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Verse 29, lastly, And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Shakespeare put it well in The Merchant of Venice in Act 4, Scene 1. He said this. Can we see that on the screen? He said, Though justice be thy plea, consider this. 
that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. None of it, none of us deserve it. But we choose him. We choose by faith, by taking that step to trust him. And that's really all it is. Do you trust that he is who he says he is? Or will you take another step of faith in your own direction? A step of faith that denies who he is, what he has done for you. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. It is, it is of free will. Do you choose election and predestination? In doing so, like I said, how powerful is he that he'll not lose you from his hand? And in the case of Israel, as Paul's argument is that he's making, he's saying here, as they didn't choose Messiah, still God did not abandon the promises that he'd made Abraham, their forefather. And so Paul says, remember who you are. As Shakespeare says, none of us deserve, deserve this salvation, deserved Christ to die on the cross for us. We know what we truly deserve. The fruit of our wickedness is what we deserve. So Paul says, who are you to say, why did you make me this way? Who are you to say, God shouldn't still bless the Israelites even though they rejected him? And that is really the just major point that Paul is making in all of that. I think the point is clear. It is a fact. It is a fact, and Paul will make this even more clear later in his, later in his argument. God's grace is far wider than anyone could have dared to believe. That is the greater, greater overarching theme of this entire section that we have read. I mean, think of us, how pitiful that we can be sometimes in church, at least in not this church, but other churches we may have gone to, right? Look at the way she's dressed. You know, wear a T-shirt to church. You need to go. That guy coming in the back is filthy. He needs to go home and clean up first. What is she doing here at church? I know where she was on Friday night. We would never think, have those thoughts, right, at Life Story Church. Now you think of the first church. Ever this entire script. What did I say from Genesis chapter 12 all the way up until Acts chapter 2? The entire word of God is about Israel. The chosen people of Israel. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles are rushing and said, you are grafted in by your faith, through the faith of Abraham. So now this salvation of the Jewish Messiah is for you too. What inevitably starts happening among the Gentile churches and is still happening in churches across America today that embrace replacement theology, they say, what do we need the Jews for anymore? And Paul says, because God keeps his promises. They were the conduit for your very salvation. How dare you say to the potter, why have you made me this way? And why the handles? Right? God will bless them. God will, he's addressing an attitude in the heart of the church of the Romans here more than anything else. 
And he says plainly, God's grace, God's grace stretches farther and wider than you can comprehend. And thank God it does. Amen? And just because it's grace, just because it's grace, no one is entitled to it. And no one can demand that God give an account of the reasons for which he bestows his grace on anyone. Why'd you give them grace, Lord? I know them, right? Who are we to say that he should bestow it in another way than he does? That's Paul's point. Grace in its sovereignty may impose conditions, church, but it is not subject to them, least of all, by us. But God delights to show mercy. And he has lavished his mercy on men and women beyond counting Gentiles and Jews alike. We'll invite Leith forward as we close this morning. Aren't we glad that God keeps his promises, church? Amen. Amen. Don't give up on the promises that he's made you this morning. Amen? Don't give up on your family. And you know what else? Don't give up on your nation. Amen? Amen. This country was, was, God was busy when this country was founded, let me tell you. This nation that has been the leading exporter of, of Christianity in the history of the world, by the way, it was in, in, God had an intentional purpose between, behind the founding of that flag on the wall. Amen? Oh, man. So, you know, I hope you're blessed today. Sometimes when we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we've got to get into the weeds of doctrine. But I'm telling you, the more you understand the doctrine, aren't you blessed for it? So not so many jokes from me today, but maybe I'll, I'll try to be funnier next week. <laughs> God declares men righteous not by faith as the procuring cause for the blood of Christ was that, not by faith as the putting forth of a work, much less by the keeping of divine commands, however holy and just, but out of reliance upon his word as true, and that alone.